Welcome to episode 252 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Susan, Michelle, Tana, Robin, and Nancy. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Susan, Michelle, Tana, Robin, and Nancy, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are our friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at the recovery show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. I was recently a guest on a podcast called Sober Speak. John M. invites guests to talk about their experience in recovery. So in effect, each week is like a speaker talk in an interview format with John and his guest. I have found it really fascinating and encouraging to listen to. John focuses on the AA program, but as I have said many times here, recovery is very similar. Whatever it is you're recovering from, once you get past the first step of dealing with your particular addiction, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, gambling, shopping, or as in my case, other people. And so John reached out to me And actually, I'm flattered because apparently he modeled a lot of what he does in his podcast on what I do here. So he reached out to me and we had a conversation. And we're publishing this episode in both podcasts. So if you listen to Sober Speak, you will hear me there, just as you're about to hear me here. I should probably mention that John records his episodes ahead. And so the episode that I did with him is not yet on his website as of this recording. He expects to publish it on Saturday, June 30th. And here is the episode of Sober Speak that I participated in with John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sober Speak. At Sober Speak, you will find podcasts of men and women sharing their experience centered around the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps of Recovery. In this particular case today, it's going to be the Al-Anon 12 Steps of Recovery, but you will see what I'm talking about. More will be revealed. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and I will be the host of this episode. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. We don't really want to replace meetings, but we can supplement for when you're not able to get to meetings. We welcome all of your comments and you can contact us in a couple of different ways. You can go to soberspeak.com and simply click on the contact us tab, or you can email us directly at feedback at soberspeak.com. We not only welcome your feedback, but highly encourage it. Soberspeak is a self-supporting organization through our own on contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Please remember, we do not speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Please take what you want 
and leave the rest at the curb. So <clears throat> we're going to take a little bit of a um, turn here today. Uh, as I mentioned right on the beginning of the podcast, we're we sure experience strength and hope around the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps of Recovery, but I have my friend Spencer T on the program today, and he is a member of Al-Anon, and uh, I'm going to ask him first off to read something. I, I asked him to bring along something that he thought would be special to him, and Spencer, I'm going to turn it over to you now, let you read whatever you want to read, and then comment on it if you'd like to tell people why it's special to you. Thanks, John. This is the suggested Al-Anon welcome. This is read at many Al-Anon meetings at the beginning. We welcome you to the Al-Anon family groups and hope you will find in this fellowship the help and friendship we have been privileged to enjoy. We who live or have lived with the problem of alcoholism understand as perhaps few others can. We, too, were lonely and frustrated, but in Al-Anon we discover that no situation is really hopeless and that it is possible for us to find contentment and even happiness whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. We urge you to try our program. It has helped many of us find solutions that lead to serenity. So much depends on our own attitudes, and as we learn to place our problem in its true perspective, we find that it loses its power to dominate our thoughts and our lives. The family situation is bound to improve as we apply the Al-Anon ideas. Without such spiritual help, living with an alcoholic is too much for most of us. Our thinking becomes distorted by trying to force solutions, and we become irritable and unreasonable without knowing it. The Al-Anon program is based on the 12 steps adapted from Alcoholics Anonymous, which we try little by little, one day at a time, to apply to our lives along with our slogans and the serenity prayer. The loving interchange of help among members and daily reading of Al-Anon literature thus make us ready to receive the priceless gift of serenity. Beautiful. I picked that because it was pretty much the first thing I heard when I mm -hmm. came to a meeting. And there was some stuff in there that just, seemed th those claims that seem outlandish been to enough open AA talks to know that you have your own version of that the promises in the in the ninth step that you know are these extravagant promises well they they felt like pretty extravagant to me <laughs> for example where it says we can find contentment and even happiness whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not well my alcoholic was still drinking and i really didn't think this was possible it just didn't seem possible at all and then there's that phrase about becoming irritable and unreasonable without knowing it. And I recognize now that I was irritable and unreasonable. I was quite irritable and quite unreasonable at times because I was trying to do something that was not possible for me to do, which was to get my loved one sober. That, that's great. That's a uh, a beautiful reading there, and I'm glad to hear Alan on. And that's what it, the meetings are opened with. And and I know I've heard. Uh, that before, uh, either in open meetings or uh, Al-Anon meetings that I have been a part of in the past. Not too many, but I have gone to a couple of meetings. And I, I, I want to let people know at the, at the top of this podcast, uh, the history and why Spencer is actually on this program today. And that is because when I first started uh, this particular podcast, Sober Speak, back in January of 2018, I had absolutely zero idea of what I was doing, how to set some things up. But I started listening to various podcasts that I could find on the internet. 
And Spencer has his own podcast. It's called The Recovery Show. I'll let him talk about that in just a moment. It's, a, it's an Al-Anon podcast. And out of all the podcasts, all, all the recovery type podcasts that I listened out there in the land, Spencer's was, from my perspective at least, by far the most well done podcast out there. So, you know, I've had uh, people ask me before, why don't you do more podcasts? I was like, well, let me just say this. If you're looking for something else during the week, here's another place you can go. Spencer's uh, it has some uh, great information. I listen to his podcast on a consistent basis. Maybe that says something about me, huh, Spencer? Maybe I should be in a Ellen on room. But nonetheless, he did a great job. We kind of started some communication via email and he's been very helpful and helping me get started and encouraging. And so that's why Spencer is here today. So first of all, Spencer, why don't you just real quickly at the top of this, tell them the name of your podcast and just to real briefly how to get hold of those podcasts. Sure. It's called The Recovery Show. Pretty generic name, but it was an available domain name at the time we started the podcast. And it captures what we're talking about. We're talking about recovery and we're focusing what we talk about on recovery in the Al-Anon program. But my experience is that once you get past the particular reason that you came to recovery, and once you get past step one, in other words, the rest of it is very similar. There's a lot of similarity in the way we work the program and the, in the things that we do, you know, same, same 12 steps, right? This is adapted and it's adapted because we changed the founders of Al-Anon, I say we, but the founders of Al-Anon changed one word in step 12, where the AA 12th step says that you carry the message to alcoholics. In Al-Anon, we carry the message to others. Mm. And that is the only difference in the steps, the way they're written. Now, what we're applying them to is a little different. So there's a lot of similarity there. And in fact, I started the recovery show because of my experience co-hosting on another AA focused podcast, which is called recovered. Ah, oh, didn't know. Yeah. So I learned from Mark who hosts recovered mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we keep passing it on. Right. Uh, so fine. you were saying, how do you get there? It's the recovery dot show or the recovery show.com. Both of those work. They'll take you to the same place. If you want to listen, you can listen right there. There's a subscribe buttons on the page There's also a contact page, which you can get to at the top of the page. There's a menu on a phone. There's a little label that says menu, and you tap on it, and it opens up on a computer. It's right there. And there's a contact button or link in in that menu, and that will take you to a page where you can get the phone number to leave a voicemail. There's an online voicemail service that takes a a shorter message, but it doesn't require you to make a phone call, which sometimes could be significant, I guess. And you can also send us email. I, I really like to hear people's voices. I always put the uh, the voice options first. Most people send email. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of what I, I, I've sent email to you so far, but I was more asking questions and such. So, all right. So I wanted to, you know, you know, obviously I hear you talking about a lot of subjects on that show. And by the way, I highly encourage people to go to the recovery show and sub- subscribe to that podcast. It's, he absolutely does a fantastic idea. And Spencer does a lot of uh, what I would call deep dives on particular subjects, does a very good job on it. Uh, he has other people on the program. He interviews them. But, you know, I'm always wondering when I'm listening to that, you know, hey, Spencer has a story as well. Right. So I reached out to Spencer and I wanted to to 
to have him on my show and kind of talk about what is your story? You know, how did you get to this place? So uh, the first thing I want to ask is, you know, you made a reference there to uh, when you first came in and my alcoholic, I've always heard that. I always think it's like a little pet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That that they have on a leash. Hey, come here, little my alcoholic. But nonetheless, uh, so you, you, you talked about your alcoholic. How long have you actually been in Al-Anon? Okay, so I, I want to say a little bit about about terminology here, about words that 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 show up in in the rooms, in the meetings, and and when we're talking. I will more often say my loved one because if I wasn't in a loving relationship with the person, I wouldn't care, hmm. and it wouldn't affect me, unless I was in a hate relationship, I suppose, because of it. And and that makes it, I think, a little more personal and a little less maybe pet. I also will say the alcoholic whose behavior brought me to Al-Anon. Yeah, yeah. Again, recognizing that it's really, it's not so much about the alcoholism. It's not so much about the person. It's about the effect of their behavior on me and the way I reacted to it. The other word that, that I hate that people use a lot in in Al-Anon, at least around here, is they talk about their qualifier. But their qualifier, uh, what is what does that mean? So we have traditions, like AA has traditions, Al-Anon has right. traditions. They're very similar. Tradition three says that the only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. And so people are like, oh well, this person qualifies me to be in Al-Anon. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I hate it. I, I try really hard not to use that term. And I, I often just sort of cringe when, when people say it, but they say it and I'm just like, okay, I can't control other people. That's why I'm in (laughs) Al-Anon. So what happened? Yeah. So let's go back a bit. Yeah. I used to think this was the beginning of my story. And, and as I've been in recovery, I realized that the person who qualifies me to be in Al-Anon is me. Okay. Mm-hmm. At the what what felt like the beginning of the Al-Anon story for me. My I will say my wife because she said it's okay for me to say that. My wife was struggling uh, with drinking. Uh, yeah. She recognized and and started trying to do something about a problem before I did really or before I recognized it consciously cuz denial is a really strong force. Mm-hmm. So she had done various programs. She tried some moderate drink, a couple of different moderate drinking programs. She did one, two, three, I'm not sure, outpatient programs. And just so I know, Spencer, real quick, was this, I mean, six months ago, six years, 20 years? Um, well, I came into Al-Anon in 2002. Okay. So this is before that. Okay. Right. Okay. Before that. Gotcha. So she's in, she's, she's in these outpatient programs and they always have a program for friends and family to come and learn about the disease and the effects of the disease on the family, et cetera, et cetera. And I was a good codependent. So I went at some point during these sessions, they would inevitably say, and there is a program for you friends and family members. It's called Al-Anon and you should check it out. Mm-hmm. My thought at that point was, Hey, I'm not the person with the problem here. <laughs> She's the person with the problem. She needs to fix her problem and then we'll be okay. 
All will be well. All will be well. Yeah, you know, we'll be F-I-N-E, which uh, I certainly was. (laughs) Fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional, right? You're right. (laughs) Okay. And, And the other thing was those 12 steps, because they had things in them that just rubbed me. Or, or scared me. In the wrong way. In the wrong way, yeah. So I wasn't going to do those 12 steps, and I wasn't the one with the problem. So we, we'll, we'll fast forward a couple of years to 2002, and she was at an inpatient program. She'd, she'd graduated from outpatient to inpatient at this point, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I went to the Friends and Family Day. It was a whole day, too, at this one. It was like okay. eight in the morning to four in the afternoon or something, as opposed to the other ones that I'd gone to, which had been like a Saturday morning or, or, or some evening or something like that. So they went in, I think they went into a little bit more depth. I don't know. Maybe I was just ready. You know how that happens, right? Uh-huh. I'm sure you've had that experience. Like you're ready. At some point you're ready to hear the message. You're ready for, for change. And I maybe I was just ready. But what I heard that day was that I didn't cause her alcoholism, that I could not cure her alcoholism, and that I could not control it. And you might think, like, oh, that's horrible. Because this is, you know, I wanted it to be fixed. But what I heard was, and what I felt was, relief. Like, here was somebody like in authority or whatever, somebody who knew telling me that the thing I had been trying to do was not something I could do and, and effectively giving me permission to stop. Mm-hmm. And I felt this relief, but also I knew, damn, I'm miserable. <laughs> Good news, bad news. If we're not going to fix her, how do I get less miserable? What do I do for myself? And that was when I heard and, you know, understood that there was this program, Al-Anon, and it was for me. And I could I could get less miserable, maybe. And it's like, well, what the heck? We'll give it a try. What do I have to lose? You know, a couple hours of my time, right? I can go to the meeting, discover it's nothing, and go away. Right, right, right. So it was a friends and family day in a treatment center. Somehow, some way, it got through to you on that time. And that kind of started your, I wouldn't say story, but that started your recovery process. Started and now recovery. you're saying, now you're saying, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. So yep. you said, I'm going to give it a shot. Then what next? Right. So I identify that day as, as what I call my surrender day. You know, when I, when I hit my knees. So let me ask you a question because I've always wondered this, right? And I've no, and I and I'm sure I've asked this question before, but I know in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? We can pretty much measure yeah. <laughs> if you have sobriety, you got sobriety, right? If you're drinking, you're drinking. If you're not, you're not, right? Yep. And that's our sobriety day. And so you said your surrender day. So can a surrender day change, if you will? I I imagine it could. For me, that was the beginning of a process that, I, you know, I'm like one of those lucky alcoholics that goes to an AA meeting and it clicks right away. Right. Okay. I know people who are who are in and out of the program, and, and I think it's everybody's choice as to how they want to identify how long they've been in recovery. 
when it's something that's not obvious. Right. Right. I think it's, it's when you commit, right? Right. Right. There are people, and, and here's how I can a little bit equate it. Cause I see people in AA who come in on a consistent basis and then they haven't had a drink, but perhaps they're on, on the side, they're doing a marijuana maintenance program, or maybe they took a few too many pills or something like that. And so technically speaking, they could get away with saying that they're sober, but they come back in later and say, you know, I just can't live with myself inside. I'm starting over. uh, And this is my new sobriety date. So in a way that could equate to a a surrender date being different. So I, and I think I, I got that concept from another person who was in the the meeting that was my home group for a long time. This person started coming maybe a couple of years before the date that she now identifies as her, her Al-Anon birthday, if you will, her surrender date, because she was coming because one of her students told her she needed to come. This, this, this student was like, had gone through rehab for drugs and, and came and said, look, I was doing all this stuff and you had no idea. And if you're going to continue in the position you're in, you really ought to go to Al-Anon and find out what's going on with you. And so she went, but it wasn't until the day that her husband came home, having been fired from his physician position for, you know, eating the prescription drugs or writing himself prescriptions or something. Mm -hmm. He got fired. Actually, I think he got arrested. And that's the day when she says, yeah, my, my knees hit the floor that day. And that's where she counts her, her Al-Anon recovery from. So for everybody, it's different. And I suppose if I, if I decided, I don't see this happening, but if I decided the program's not for me, I don't need it. And then, you know, I came back around and, and tried to save another alcoholic and found myself on my knees again, I might have to update it. I don't know. It's a good question. Okay. So you get in, you have your surrender date, and then kind of take me forward from there. What happened? So that that night, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. And the way I got there, I had a friend who had stopped drinking and and I thought was probably an AA. Uh, Maybe I'd heard it from a mutual friend. And I called him up and I said, hey, um, do you know about any Al-Anon meetings? And he said, yeah. He said, there's a really good one. It's right around the corner from my house. It's tonight. I could take you and introduce you to some people. And I had to think about that. So I said, okay, I'll think about that. And I hung up and then like 30 seconds later, I called back and said, yes, please. Um, And so that night I went to my first meeting and I don't know what the topic of the meeting was. I don't know what people said, but somehow I knew that I was no longer alone Mm -hmm. because here was this room full of people who understood what was happening in my life, who understood what was happening in my, in my home. And this was stuff that I hadn't been able to talk about to anyone because shame, fear, whatever, I don't know. So you had not been so, and, and, and to me, that's an important part of the story. Uh, so you, you had not been able to open up to uh, friends, families, ministers, whatever the case may be regarding this, at least not to any sort of deep level. It sounds like, is that correct? Right. I think almost a year earlier, 2001, we had gone to a cousin's wedding. Both he and his father are recovering alcoholics. So my uncle, right? And my uncle identified my wife's behavior 
as probably alcoholic, just seeing her at the wedding. Mm-hmm. And I guess spoke to my mother. And so I remember having this conversation with my mother where she asked if my wife's drinking was affecting like her work or something. And I snapped out some response like, I hope not, or I think not, and made it very clear that I didn't want to talk about it. Right. <laughs> you know, And that was as far as that conversation ever went. Yeah, the body language and the tone tell everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll pick it up. So, yeah. So, I came to that meeting, and at the end of the meeting, I wasn't alone, and I felt a little better. And as a friend of mine in the program likes to say, that that feeling lasted probably till the parking lot. Right. <laughs> but it it was enough. It was enough right. that I came back the next week. And I came back the next week. For my wife, the the inpatient didn't take. I think she might have stayed sober, not drinking. There's a distinction there that I think you probably understand. For a couple of weeks, and then she started drinking again. Mm-hmm. She ended up going into a residential, long-term residential program. It was on the other side of the state. And I was driving over there once a week for Hey Friends and Family Day, right? <laughs> It sounds so... Got to do this thing, right? Friends and family day, like you're going to an amusement park or something like that. (laughs) In a way, I guess it is. And this one, this was intense. They they did this cognitive behavioral therapy with, you know, sort of confrontational and people would be carrying a rock around or something occasionally, you know. Oh, like drop the rock. And we had like group sessions and in-person sessions with a therapist and educational presentations about the disease of alcoholism and relapse and so on. It was, it was very thorough and I learned a lot from it. So she's on the other side of the state. I have two children at home, preteen children at home. My life got easier. (laughs) Okay. Um, That's the impact of alcoholism on the family right there. Right. My life's easier when, when the alcoholic's not there, even though I'm a single dad. But but that's her story, and we'll leave her story to her story. I kept working the Al-Anon program. So I came in, and I knew I wasn't alone, and I came back because I wanted a little bit more of that. And I started to listen, and I started to hear what people were saying, and I started to see that here were people who maybe they were still living with their alcoholic like I was, but they weren't miserable. I'm like, well, how do you do that? How do you get there? And the answer, and you know the answer, right? It's go to meetings, read the literature, get a sponsor, work the steps. Mm-hmm. I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> and this is where this is where actually steps two and three come into my life. Because when I came in, I was not churched. I didn't believe in God. Mm-hmm. Or maybe. I was I really wasn't sure about that, and I did not want whatever God there was controlling my life. I wasn't going to give that up, right? You would describe yourself as either a, an atheist or an agnostic? I would say probably agnostic, yeah. Yeah. Agno- I mean, I wasn't like hardcore atheist, like there is no God. It's just like, I'm not sure there is one. And I'm not sure that if there is one, he's going to do anything for me because I'd never seen any evidence of that, right? Right. Okay. I used to tell people that um, atheism was, it, it almost required too much effort. I had to be able to <laughs> argue my way out of it yeah. if I was an atheist. If you're an agnostic, you could just kind of fly under the radar. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I have a friend, well, he's dead now. 
he described himself as a religious atheist. He was religiously atheistic, right? Um, it's a thing. Yeah, it's a it thing. is. It is. But what I what I had there, and this is again, this is some hindsight that I saw this process, this go to meetings, read the literature, get a sponsor, work the steps. I saw this working for people and I started to believe it could work for me. And that is the essence of step two, that there is something greater than me that can help restore me to sanity. Boom. That is step two. And by making a commitment to do those things, that's step three, right? Right. That's that's correct. So let me stop you real quick on that piece, all right? Because when you talk about sanity, right? So I know when in AA, from my perspective, and taking bits and pieces out of the book, sanity is is an essence. You know, you put a uh, shot of whiskey down in front of me, then you put a bottle of water in front of me, and I'm able to pick up the bottle of water versus the shot of whiskey. So. Right. And I, I know there are other pieces to, you know, behavioral pieces and all that sort of stuff. But I believe the the book is clear about it and that the sanity part is just where alcohol is concerned. In in the world of Al-Anon, when you think about sanity, right, being restored to sanity, how does that manifest itself in an Al-Anon world? Sure. Well, one thing is I was a rageaholic. I had all this bottled up emotion, anger, frustration, resentment, you name it. It was there. And it it had no outlet. Mm. It was it was not emotionally safe for me to let it out on my wife. Mm-hmm. It happened sometimes, but it was not emotionally safe for mm. me. Uh, it came out on my children. It came out on my coworkers. Gotcha. I would scream at other drivers on the road, but they didn't know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But it affected me, right? So that was part of my insanity was this rage that was in me all the time. And, you know, the kid would knock over a almost empty glass of milk and I would pound the table and scream at them. I had to make amends for that, right? Yeah. And so that was part of my insanity. Another part of my insanity, you know, that that definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Uh I kept trying to do these things to, you know, somehow convince my wife that she needed to stop drinking and she would. And I kept trying things and they kept not working. And I kept trying them again and again, because I didn't know any different, you know, pointing out the, the, the impact, you know, pointing out, Oh, well you left the, left the stove on because you just forgot that it was on. Mm-hmm. that or slamming the wine bottles into the recycling bin, because if I did it loud enough, clearly she would know there was too many. Right. <laughs> I mean, clearly. that's my insanity. Right. Okay. So, so that's what it looks like in your world. So it's a matter of uh, uh, maybe when the kids spill the milk at this point, we're able to back off take a deep breath and realize the world's not going to fall uh, apart around us. That would be restored to sanity in an Al-Anon's world. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and I know that when we get further down the steps, we get to step 12. We practice these principles in all our affairs. We start finding recovery 
away from the substance, away from the the person that was the focus at the beginning of the program, right? We find sanity in lots of other parts of our lives where we didn't even know we were like being a little crazy. Amen, brother. I get you there. Still happening. All right. So you were so so you're to the point now to where you know you didn't cause it, you didn't you can't cure it and you can't control it. Yeah. Yeah. And part of your experience of coming to believe, we were talking about that. Uh, and then you were talking a little bit about the third step, and I kind of slowed you down a little bit. Yeah. D- tell me about the third step and your experience with that. So the third step was a tough one for me because not having a God concept and then and and not wanting to give up control. And you can probably relate to not wanting to give up control. Mm-hmm. I had to come into it. I had to sort of back into it, right? My sponsor at the time said, fake it till you make it, you know, do the action and the belief will come, you know, act your way into right thinking. You may have heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing is that, and, and at this point I am, I'm working the steps with a group. Seven or eight of us got together and said, we're going to meet once a week and we're going to work through the steps. We have one of our books sort of, I guess, I don't know. It's sort of like the 12 and 12. It's got a chapter for each step, a chapter for each tradition. And at the end of each chapter, it's got questions. So there's like a workbook component to it as well. And so we would meet once a week and we would go through the ways in which each of us had answered those questions. And we, it took us two years to get through all 12 steps. Oh, wow. Yeah, (laughs) we were thorough. Yeah, very thorough. (laughs) So, and and here's another question I have for you as as you're rolling along here, and that is, I've heard you even uh, reference this on your podcast, and that is, uh, Al-Anon, as you know, is mainly comprised of women folk, as they call it in the uh, in, in the big book, right? Obviously, you're not a woman folk. In that initial group, were there, was it mainly women? Did that cause any sort of challenges with your wife? I don't know where she was at this point, but uh, just talk about your experience yep. as being a, a man in Al-Anon. Actually, that group that we were working the steps, I was the only man in that group. Yeah. The meetings that I go to now, we're we're seeing a higher proportion of of men, at least in the in the southeast Michigan Ann Arbor area, in the Al-Anon program. And sometimes I'll sit at a table, and we have that most of our meetings are like there. You sit around a table with like eight or ten people at a table, and there's several tables, each sort of doing their own little meeting. So I'll sit. Sometimes I'll sit at a table, and there's more men than women. It's kind of interesting. A lot of the men in the program are what we often refer to as double winners, which ah, means okay, that they're, they're in AA. But I, I came to understand that just about anybody who qualifies for Alcoholics Anonymous probably has friends or relatives who are alcoholics. Right, right. And their lives may be affected by those friends and relatives, right? <laughs> right, right. And you know, and I got to tell you, I've I've found myself very attracted to your show and how you go about things. And I'm thinking, 
hmm, maybe this is telling me something, you know, uh, because it's, uh, I mean, it is, it's very good information. I mean, it, it, it's about relationships and about how to deal with people and kind of a, a you know, a different twist on it. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. But nonetheless, I want to talk about you. So your experience being a man. So one of the things is it's hard to find a sponsor. Ah, yeah, yeah. There aren't a lot of men and a lot of the men don't stick around so long. Mm-hmm. And so finding somebody who's got the experience to be an effective sponsor is difficult. And and the guys that are there get a little overloaded. Right. And so that's, that's an issue. And one of my sponsors for a while was a woman and, and, you know, she was about my age, which is definitely at that point, upwards of 50. And there was no kind of, what uh, romantic or sexual attraction there at all. Right. But she had a lot of experience in the program and, and she was dealing with a spouse who was alcoholic. And when she spoke in meetings, I, I heard it, you know, it's like you look for somebody who's got what you want. You look for somebody who says things that you connect with. And I Mm -hmm. said, can you be my sponsor? And, 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 and she was for several years. And then, my situation shifted. I was at that point started to sponsor a bunch of guys who were double winners. And I wanted somebody who could help me understand how that worked. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I got a new sponsor who was a guy at that point. And then he moved away and it's a whole long story. But uh, so, so being a, being a man in the program that is, is, it's not hard. There's just some issues. And uh, I, I'm again doing a step study group. And I'm the only guy in the group. It's just how it happens to work out. Uh, another group that I had was more evenly balanced. We ended up in that group. We got down to like four people, and it's two of us were guys, two were women. Mm-hmm. So, yes, often a lot more women than men. It's true. So back to the third step then. Yeah. So you so you were going through this process with this group of 12 people or whatever it was. Go ahead. So answering those questions sort of made me look at my life, made me look at what was happening. And I started to see these God moments, these places where, hey, I wasn't angry today. How'd that happen, right? Mm-hmm. I started to hear this this voice, this little still small voice, as we say sometimes, saying things to me that, were not my thoughts. A, a, a story here, maybe make it a little clearer. So my wife, when she came out of the residential program and she was clean and sober for the first time in a long time, she did manage to not drink while she was pregnant, which I don't know how she did that, but she did. But then, then, then it was downhill after that. And uh, so she comes out and, we had been married, what, 18 years at that point, I think. Is that right? Something like that. And so is this around 2002? This is in 2002. This is late 2002. Okay. And we had these, what we called hippie wedding bands. They were gold with an opal inlay, and they, the opal kept cracking and falling out, and, and they, weren't, they weren't holding up real well. And we thought, well, let's, let's get adult wedding bands, right? <laughs> so we went to a local jeweler who was like made his own 
stuff, and she found a ring she really liked. And it was, I don't know, let's say $5,000. Uh-huh. And I was like, that's too much. And she wasn't happy with me saying that, right? She really liked this ring. I'm like, ah, we can't afford it. And I don't know, maybe it was a day or two later. I'm walking down the street and this voice in my head says, this is really important to her. You should get it. Okay. That wasn't me. Right. Okay. That was me being open to the voice of a higher power that was guiding me towards a more, you know, serene life or something, right? A a better relationship. As it happens, we went to another jeweler. We found one that was very similar that was half the price. Okay. So I started to see these, you could call them coincidences, you could call them God moments. And I started to see that if if I opened up and listened, I would get guidance. Right. Okay. Right. And it was still up to me to follow it because that's the way we are. Mm. We have free will. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. But we have it. <laughs> right. right. So listening to that still, small, quiet voice within, mm-hmm. that takes practice, right? And uh And that's what prayer and meditation are about. That's right. That's right. Is opening up to to hear. And sometimes God's choice, God's ways are not our ways. He's not as quote pragmatic as I am. (laughs) So you got so you got a little taste of God in your life by listening to that still small quiet voice. Do you remember actually doing? uh, I I don't know how is done in Al-Anon. I know in. In AA, uh, most of the time, it's a turn into page 63, you open up the book, get on your knees with your sponsor, whatever the case may be, and you do the third step prayer. Is it done the same way in Al-Anon? Some people do that. Um, That was not my experience. My experience was a a much more gradual, you know, coming coming to a decision and then taking it back and letting it go and taking it back and letting it go. Right. Uh, <laughs> I understand that. There was a point in, in my life where I was saying that every morning, but it came later. Let me think. So here we are, 2002. Oh, the other thing that, that happened in 2002, and this I believe is not a coincidence, uh, is I went back to church. I went back to the, the faith that I had been raised in as a child Okay. When did you leave it as a child? When I graduated high school, basically. I went off to college. When I was a child, a teen, uh, in in my church community at home, we never saw the inside of the sanctuary during services. We never were in with the adults. I had no idea what happened in there except, like, you know, some guy standing up front talking, right? (laughs) Right. So a little bit of singing. For me, especially as a teenager, church was about fellowship. It was about hanging out with kids my age that we had similar beliefs and playing music, just talking. And so I didn't know what it meant to be an adult in a church. I had no idea. So I didn't see any value and and so I didn't go. And then we, you know, fast forward 30 years, more or less, 
And I came back. I walked into the, the church here. And just out of curiosity, were you by yourself? Were you with your wife? I think I think she actually started going before me oh. and sort of convinced me to come. My memory is I walked in and immediately felt at home and found that here is this thing that I didn't know I was missing. Okay. Like I said, I, I, this is not a coincidence in my, in my mind that, that I found the church and I found Al-Anon within months of each other. And I'm, I'm actually not sure which one came first, Mm -hmm. Um, but they really meshed and, and supported each other. Right. They dovetailed and they have their, their specific purposes. Right. And and I want to ask you a little bit about that because I have heard you talk about, I have heard you made references to the church that you go to and some of the things you've learned to learned on your podcast. See, I actually am really listening. I'm not just saying. (laughs) And, uh, so, and so we have a, we have, we have some similarities there. And what I mean by that is I got, I got sober and then my sponsor, Actually, he was going to church and he didn't press it. But about after, I don't know, nine months or a year or something like that, I started asking him questions about that. And I started going to church and I thought, oh, wow, you know, I've been missing something. This is really good. But the piece that I really wanted to, to focus on with you just because of time here is that uh, we I, I've heard you talk about actually leading middle schoolers. And that's what I do at my church. And it's been an absolutely fantastic. It's so weird. Sometimes I look up, I go, I cannot even believe I am doing this. How did I get from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. I was not interested in this. So talk about whatever you've learned at church and maybe possibly the, with the middle schoolers or anything else. One of the things that happened is, is my kids turned 13. I have twins. So they mm-hmm. turned 13 at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, God, I'm going to have teenagers. <laughs> and a year later, I was like, wow, I have teenagers. <laughs> I discovered that I actually like teenagers. Yeah, me too. That's what I discovered. Right. And so I started working first with the, actually with the high school group, 9 through 12 grades for several years, and then started working with that same age group, but in a larger region, a sort of uh, Michigan, Indiana, a little bit of Ohio, Kentucky region. And we would plan weekend conferences for the high school. Actually, the, the, it was a youth-led committee. They planned the conferences. The adults were there to sort of provide support and and guidance. Mm-hmm. That was really, uh, what's the word I want? Fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And then we'd go to these conferences and you got maybe – between 60 and 100 people you know, locked in a church for a weekend doing workshops and worship and stuff like that. And and all of it led by the youth. It was so powerful. Mm-hmm. And then in the last couple of years, I started working with the seventh grade kids because, you know, they needed a teacher. And the, the people who were leading the class at that point were like, hey, Spencer, we think you'd be great for this. Why don't you come check it out? And And I was like, yeah, seventh graders. I don't know if I can, you know, do seventh graders. We'll see. Well, it turns out I can. <laughs> right. It's a challenge. <laughs> right. It's a really interesting age. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's incredible how much they know, though. But oh, my and, God, and at yeah. the same time, what they're going through. And, it, and the interesting part to me is I figured out that what they're struggling with, 
uh, is really what I'm struggling with at an adult level. They just have different names and places. And hmm. I, I mean, they're struggling with relationships and how to fit in and being liked and the whole nine yards. Right. Uh, true. We, anyway, I'll, I'll let you go ahead. Uh, so you started working with the seventh graders. Yep. And, and I've been doing that for a couple of years and I'll be doing it again next year. We go on break in the summer. We don't have religious education in the summer. Um, at least not for that age group. There's something to keep the, the younger kids occupied while the rest of us are sitting there listening to the boring guy up front talk, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> which not so boring to you once you're an adult, right? Right. And I don't know if you had this experience or not, but every time I would go to a church, I'd think, oh, that person's an alcoholic or an Al-Anon or something <laughs> like that. I mean, look, listen, there's a, and it turns out that these principles have been around for years and uh, they're not alcoholic. They're not Al-Anon. They're yep. just, they've been trying, they had some sort of idea of which direction to go way before I did. Yep. Also, I feel that working with teens is part of my amends to my own children. Mm. You know, I can't give them back the time when I was, rageful. I can't give that back to them, but I can pay it forward to somebody else's kids Right to be an adult with whom they can have a direct relationship, a, a, a respectful relationship. And there've been a few kids who have really needed that. Mm-hmm. You know, there was one kid who started coming to the high school group by himself. His family was not part of our church. But mm-hmm. he needed that community. He needed right. that place where he could be himself. And, and we could talk about matters of, I'm going to say matters of spirit, matters of soul, which you don't get that like at school. You don't mm-hmm. get that hanging with your friends at the mall. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is a place where we can talk about these things that, that really matter. Right. I still see him occasionally. I was, in fact, last week I was running a race and he said, Hey, Spence. I'm like, Oh, Hey, how you doing? You know, he doesn't, he didn't even live in town anymore, but he, he was back for something and, and, and he was running the race and, and, you know, we shared a moment because right. we still had that connection that we had built when he was, I won't say an angry teenager, but he definitely had some acting out. Right. Yes, you're right. And, you know, it's interesting when I go back and I think about the people that were nice to me or just kind to me when I was uh, when I was a teen and even in elementary and junior high, those faces still stand out to me. And I people I appreciate those people investing their time with me. So let's let's forward through a, a couple more years of my story here. You know, I worked through the steps. I did the fourth step. I did the fifth step. I did that inventory that had so scared me that I was one of the reasons I didn't want to come in the program. I did it and I found the power in it. I found the power in admitting my faults and in owning them and being ready to ask a higher power to, to help me change. Right. Step six and seven. I started making amends. At this point, my wife's drinking again, that residential program. I think she was sober for about eight months and then she relapsed. And so that's part of the story. You know, she relapsed. And I, I had a backslid. I, I slipped. I did some crazy things. I actually forced her back into that residential program for another month. And she came out and she drank the night she came out. And that put the nail in my 
controlling. Like it was very clear that I had no control. And that's the last time I actually tried to force her into anything about recovery. But what I, what I knew at that point was I recognized what was happening and I stepped up my meetings, you know, Al-Anon's we're kind of more laid back. We might go to one or two meetings a week, especially when things are going well. I, I ramped it up to like five and I probably could have gone to more, except like there wasn't one, one night. Weren't any on Saturday or evening or something. Anyway, I kept working my program. I was not ready to make amends to her at that point. And this is one of those things like, you know, step eight says became ready to make amends to them all. Well, I was not ready to make amends to her. I knew I needed to. Right. But I wasn't going to do it while she was still drinking. Right. That that sat with me for a while. It did. Got to steps 10, 11, 12. I love those steps. They were where I want to live, right? Mm-hmm. I want to clean up my messes as soon as they happen. There is such a relief in doing that, right? Mm-hmm. I make a mistake. I admit it. I do what I can to to make amends, to fix whatever, or to change so that maybe it doesn't happen again. And it doesn't sit on me anymore, right? Right. Ah, it's a beautiful step. You know, step 11... I work on that. <laughs> My prayer and meditation is is spotty. Uh, that that's the step that that I I need to live in better, and and I you know I work on it. Mm-hmm. And step twelve, well, the podcast is part of carrying the message, right? Mm-hmm. Going to meetings and sitting at first step table, sharing my experience, strength, and hope with somebody who has come in and is is you know sobbing because they don't know what to do. So the, let me just ask you there real quick. So you say a first step, step table. So, yeah. uh, and you know, different parts of the country do it in different yes. ways. And yes. I have actually been to meetings in Michigan before and I've seen the setup there. And I know what you're talking about, but do they have different topics at different tables there? It depends on the meeting. Okay. You know, tradition for like every meeting runs the way that every, they run as long mm-hmm. as they follow the traditions. Correct. So one of the meetings that I go to, it started as a step meeting. So every week is a step and both tables, unless, unless there's a newcomer, if there's a newcomer, one of the tables does first step, but otherwise, you know, this week is step five, next week is step six, et cetera. So, so let me make sure I stop you there just so I understand the, because it sounds like an interesting setup. So like, for example, step one would be, uh, this, you know, January step two is February, whatever. But if they determine before the meeting starts that there is a, somebody there for the first time, yep. they will dedicate one of the four tables specifically to step one. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And, and we always ask, at that meeting, we ask, is there anybody new to the program? And people usually will say yes. Sometimes I think they don't. Right. And if somebody identifies themselves as new, we give them a newcomer packet, which has a, information about the program, a list of meetings, et cetera. And then in that particular meeting, we, do for, we, we talk about the first step, which means we read from our, our version of the big book. It's, the book is called How Al-Anon Works. And yeah. it's like the it's like the big book. It's structured very similarly with the steps and and principles of the program 
And then in the back, there's individual stories. So I, I think somebody was following a model, just like you were following my, my, my podcast model, right? Right. <laughs> we'll read step one from one of our books, depending which meeting I'm at. Um, it, it's two different books that we use at the two different meetings. And then basically, people will typically share a little bit of their, their story. And hopefully the newcomer resonates with one or more of what people have said. Sometimes the person who's there for the first meeting will share. Sometimes they'll just like, you know, burst right out at the beginning. Sometimes they'll wait till the end. Sometimes they don't want to, and that's okay. The meeting that I started at is a different format. It's, it's a one big circle. Actually, now there's enough people. There's like two circles of chairs around the room. Uh, and there might be 60 to 100 people at that meeting. It's a speaker lead, so somebody gives like a 10-minute lead on a topic of their choice. Sometimes the meeting prescribes a step that sort of the group conscience decides every year. Are we going to like do the steps this year? In that particular meeting, it has a newcomer's meeting after the big meeting. So that's a service position for that for that group that somebody will – set up some chairs in a circle in a corner of the room and anybody who is new ish can come and that, and that is a conversational thing. So people, because people come in with questions and most of the meetings I go to are not crosstalk meetings. So, you know, you can't ask a question and get a response if, if you, if if there's no crosstalk. Um, But so that little circle does have back and forth. People can ask questions, learn more about the program. And sometimes people would come to that for, for several weeks or, or months as they're trying to learn more about how this program works, means what it means to them. Right, right. Because it's not obvious to a lot of us why we're at an Al-Anon. I mean, it was obvious to me. But some people are come in and they're, they're really not sure why they're there. You right. Know, they don't maybe have an active alcoholic in their life. Maybe they left their boyfriend or their girlfriend, or maybe there was alcoholism in their family growing up, but they don't live there anymore. But, you know, something's still not right in their life, and somehow they end up in an Al-Anon meeting. Right, right. So I want to go back to your uh, – your just real quickly before yeah. we wrap up, your your wife, because I've heard yeah. you talk about her. Right. Did she eventually – Get the hang of it, so to speak. So here, here we are. I've I'm working the program. I've got the steps. I've got the serenity occasionally. That was something I thought I would never have, and I had it. Meanwhile, she's still finding her bottom. Mm-hmm. But what Alan and I gave me in that time was the tools to to be with her because I still loved her. I didn't yeah. want to leave. I just, at the beginning, I had no idea how it was possible for me to continue to live in this situation, but I didn't want to leave. Mm-hmm. And it took me a couple of years to, to, to really figure that out, to, under, to, to come to a place where I could say, yes, I can. I want to, and I can stay. Right. That's not the place that, that a lot of people get to when they're living with an alcoholic. A lot of people get to the I'm leaving place. And, right. and I understand that. <laughs> you know, I do. Yeah not my story. So she's continuing to go downhill and I don't know what the end game is. Right. What's on the other side. I do know that if she continues to drink where you end up at death, you know, if you can't stop, right. Mm. When that would happen, I don't know if that would happen. I don't know, but I, 
I had my place to stand that Al-Anon had given me. I had a center. I had a higher power that supported me. I had friends in the program that supported me. Mm -hmm. And so I could be there as a support rather than as a fixer, an enabler, a caretaker, just as a support. And there came a day where she said, she woke up in the morning and she said, I don't want to drink today and I don't want to drink tomorrow. And will you help me get rid of all the alcohol in the house? Mm -hmm. And I said, sure. Not knowing, like, was this going to take? But what I understand about that is that she decided that she wanted, and she had that moment of clarity, you know, that, 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 that comes if, for the lucky ones, I guess, mm-hmm. where she could say that. And, and she did it for herself. You know, she wasn't doing it for me. She wasn't doing it for the kids. She was doing it for herself. And I think that is part of the difference. But, you know, she found a bottom. And, and that day didn't look different from the day before to me, but for her it was. That was 2005. And, you know, it, I say we're still putting our, our relationship back together. And, and I think sometimes I have to step back and look at where we are and say, oh, actually, yeah, we're a lot further along than I thought we were. Because this stuff happens gradually and you don't notice it. But we each work our program, and that has given us the ability to rebuild our relationship stronger than it ever was, really. Because it always had alcohol in it before. Um, She's had, what, let me think, 12 and a half years of continuous sobriety. I couldn't do it without the program, you know? Right. I understand. Without the tools like the inventory, I mean, that thing, that inventory thing that scared me so much when I was coming into the program has turned out to be one of the best tools that I have in my, you know, spiritual toolbox because I can, when something goes weird, when something goes wrong, I can step back and I, and I have this process like, you know, the first nine steps are the program, right? The first nine steps are the work and, and then the last three steps are, Keep it going. So I look at, oh, I did this thing. Okay, I'm powerless over the fact that I did this thing. Step one. Step two, there is help available, and I can ask for it in step three. I can look at in detail what happened. So, you know, I had a a sort of a snippy conversation with somebody, and after the fact, I realized, or maybe somebody points out to me, hey, you know, like, that wasn't very respectful. I'm like, oh, okay. So what was going on? What was going on in me at that time? And I can do that. And sometimes this whole thing takes like two minutes. And sometimes it can take a couple of years in, in the case of one thing. But I can look at it. And then there's that that step five, that admitting it out loud to somebody. So powerful. Right? We're only as sick as our secrets. In step six and seven, I own the fact that I did it and I ask for help. And if I need to make amends, I can do that. And and I can do this whole thing. Like I said, I can do this whole thing in five minutes sometimes. But it's it's such a powerful set of tools 
for keeping my life straight, for keeping my relationships straight. And so, yeah, so we, we've been together 38 years now, almost married for 34. The first 25 years of those, the first 25 years had alcohol. You had to relearn things for sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and that's, that's where that, that, foolish notion I had that all she had to do was stop drinking and everything would be fine. That's where that shows up. Like, yeah, no, it's work. (laughs) (laughs) It's work, but I have the tools to do it and I have the help to do it. We each have the help, the support of a loving higher power. You know, I, I sponsor a bunch of guys who are double winners. And one of them, I remember having this conversation about step three with him because he was really struggling with letting the care of his loved one to God. I said, you did step three in AA. Don't you trust your higher power to take care of you? And he said, yeah, but I don't trust my higher power to take care of her. I'm like, well, that's this is the work we have to do for step three for you, you know? But having that, having that is what, you know, enables us to do this thing. I agree. This, that's very well said, Mr. Spencer T. Lewis and I, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, maybe at some other time. And I know you know how to do deep dives on particular conversations because I've heard you do it over and over on, yeah. uh, on your podcast. Maybe we could take a, uh, a deep dive into some sort of topic, if you will. And keep our dialogue going. The dialogue between Texas and Michigan. <laughs> Good dialogue. So keep in mind, folks, we welcome your thoughts and feedback. Please contact us at feedback at soberspeak.com. And usually I go ahead and read the uh, big book. So I'm going to go ahead and do that now. At the end, it says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. If you want to contact Spencer, you can just go to his website or come to mine and send an email, and I will get you in contact with him. Once again, Mr. Spencer, I sure do appreciate you being on the program. God bless you and yours up there in Michigan. Thank you. I'm sort of wrapping John's episode into my own here, so I'm going to continue with the discussion of my life in recovery, how I use these principles in all my affairs. It's been a couple of weeks, as I indicated last time, I was taking a vacation, which tends to interfere with producing the podcast, and sure enough, it did. And I needed a lot of the tools of this program because I was visiting family. Family are always difficult. My wife and I went to a meeting on Friday, as we often do when we're visiting my parents' house. There's a particular meeting we like to go to. It was a small meeting this time. There were a total of five of us there. And the conversation went to, well, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a conversation. It was serial sharing 
because with five people, we each shared several times on related but differing topics. The meeting opened with a reading from Courage to Change for June 22nd, which talks about communication, and it talks about, in particular, the notion that I can choose whether somebody, quote, makes me feel something or not. And that when I allow somebody to make me feel in a particular way, I'm actually giving them power over me. And I picked up on that and talked about some of the communication issues that we had had during the week. When family gets together, you don't all agree. You want to be together, but sometimes it gets rough and sometimes there are disagreements. And I am conflict averse, but when I'm challenged, I will speak up. And I didn't always respond kindly and thoughtfully to some of the things that people said. And in the meeting, I was reminded that this is a choice that I have and that I can choose the words I use. I can choose the tone of voice I use. I can choose to pause momentarily and and let myself come down off the emotional surge that I might have had. The thing that almost always comes up for me visiting my parents is their aging and their health and their mental health in particular, as they are both moving into different kinds of what appears to be some form of dementia, definitely memory loss. And in the past, I have been very triggered by this. I've been very fearful around this. And somehow on this visit, I was much more accepting. And in particular with my father, who when he started showing signs of memory loss a couple of years ago, I was in strong denial about it. I brushed off every sign just thinking, oh, well, he's old and, you know, I'm, I forget things and he forgets things. But as it became more and more clear, I got more and more anxious and, and angry at, sort of angry at life, you know? But this time I wasn't. This time I really, for the most part, accepted where they both are. And what was really interesting is that I kind of viewed my father as a child because a lot of the way in which he acted, the things that he wanted to talk about, the way that he sometimes focused on particular things that just occurred to him reminded me of, I don't know, maybe a six-year-old, something like that, which you could think, wow, oh, that's that's horrible. But it wasn't. I'm not sure why, but it was it was actually pretty good. And it really helped him for me to make the visit more serene for me, you know? Yeah, I think that's I think that's what I'll talk about right now. Diana here. Part of what recovery has given to me is this concept that I'm not okay right now, and that's okay. That perfectionism for me is a disease. And this concept of acceptance and surrender that I don't get to write the story of my life. These are things that are written by God, by heaven, by my higher power. And I'm just a part of this story. And I realized that I was very judgmental of the people who had addiction surrounding me. I was very judgmental of my mother, my father. And I'm still working through a lot of anger with my father, I'll be honest. But I'm coming to the point where I'm allowing people to be people and understanding that it's my responsibility to fill these holes from within. It's not their responsibility. 
And it's my responsibility to let go and to forgive and to love. So speaking to the perfectionism, I'm very hard on myself and I'm also hard on others. And today was a really great example because I'm working in database administration and working on a really complicated program. And there's um, a ticket that's out there. It's been out there for six months that we're waiting to get resolved. In the meantime, we have to have this workaround and I have to work with a few different people on how to best tackle this. And we've tried a couple of different approaches. Well, anyway, today I didn't take the best approach in the communication with my coworker. She was trying to communicate something to me and I had already arrived at what she was saying. And I had so much to do that I said, yeah, I need to go on to the next four steps ahead of you. But because I didn't stop and we had didn't have this great communication, it ended up costing us both time. And then we had to have a powwow and and resolve it. Whereas had I just listened to her in the first place, like I would have validated her and then we could have moved on and accomplished more. And I got really frustrated with myself and, and hard on myself that I, I messed that up. And then when I got home, I just realized it's okay to be human. Like, I think we are who we are. And this idea of being progressive and constantly changing and growing and getting a degree, like I believe in that, that is who I am. But I think it's also important, especially in this phase in my life, that I'm okay with what is, that if it ended tomorrow, I'm at peace inside, that my happiness isn't affiliated with success or what I achieve or who I become, and that that's not my identity but the value is intrinsic and regardless of my degree or my relationship status or where I work or how thin I am, my value is there. And so this concept of like perfectionism driving you and trying to always compete with yourself and never feeling good enough and always feeling like I am not like my mom. I am not like my dad. I am, I am something. I might've been born in this like complete poverty stricken, background of nothing, but I'm proving, no, I'm something. And I think that right there is a thing to be challenged because on the inside, we don't totally believe that we are valuable. And I don't exactly know the depths of all that, but I know that it's real for me. Like I came from broken parents. I wasn't validated by them and I wasn't validated by the world. And I felt, why me? And it I felt like a mistake. I don't know if anybody else can relate to this, but I'm learning that I don't have to take on what happened to me as part of my identity or part of my story. That was unfortunate, luck of the draw, and I don't need to read into it. And I just need to say, well, it helped me, it taught me moving on and forgive people for their mistakes and learning to be okay with exactly who I am and not needing to just be this great, wonderful, awesome, explosive thing. I don't know if anybody else can relate, but my whole life, I feel like I've been proving I've been striving and I've been pushing to show myself. And I'll just close with this. I read this book called Jeanette Walls, The Glass Castle. And it was such an incredible book. It talks a lot about addiction and dysfunctional home. And and a lot of the stories she told, I felt like I went through myself. Like we didn't have indoor plumbing. Uh, we didn't have food a lot of the time. Um, we dug through trash for things. And 
and, and on and on. And I just was amazed at how she did not judge her parents. And I'm still blown away by it. Like, how is that possible with what you went through that you don't feel anger? <laughs> because I'm working through so much anger myself. But that's okay. You know, that's part of like my journey. And I will get through it. But it was such a powerful example to me that she, it really showed how far she was in her recovering journey because she wasn't angry and she was okay with who she was. You know, she spoke about the stories with, with respect, you know, with respect to her parents. It was just crazy. But anyway, that's how I'm feeling tonight. Thanks for letting me share. All right. Bye. Got, uh, got some email and voicemail, and you can call and leave voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website, or if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. We would love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions with us. Please join our conversation. Our website, which is therecovery.show, has all the information about the show, including some notes for each episode, links to the music that we talk about, although I'm not talking about music in this particular episode, links to some other recovery podcasts and websites as well. And as I said, we got some, some email and some voicemail this week. Tanner wrote, your message about step six and how you and your wife feel loved was just what I needed to hear. Thank you. That was episode 248, which you can go to at therecovery.show slash 248. Jen wrote, thank you for all that you do. This podcast led me to Al-Anon. Both have been a life changer and lifesaver without the slightest bit of exaggeration. Ever grateful, Jen. Penelope says, Spencer, the interview was excellent. A very clear and honest explanation of Al-Anon's benefits. I hope your surgery and rehab go smoothly. Best wishes, Penelope. And thank you, Penelope, for the for the wishes. Um, several people have been writing in it, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, when she says the interview, she's talking about my interview on Northern Spirit Radio. You can hear about that at therecovery.show slash 251, which has a link to the actual interview at Northern Spirit Radio's website. Got a note, Spencer. I have been in program five and a half years, and I'm finding myself in very rough patch these couple of months. As Father Tom has mentioned, I feel like I'm starting over from scratch. I've been listening to several past episodes, such as Hope, Parents Roundtable, etc., but this one of forcing solutions really synchronized with what is going on in my life right now. That was episode 20 at therecovery.show slash 20. What would you think about a show titled Recovery Update with past guest hosts such as Swetha, Kelly, May, Michelle, Ruth? These older programs have given me such hope and strength in continuing in recovery. Recovery is a lot like running a marathon on a roller coaster, and as I find myself deep in a valley now, I depend on these older podcasts to see me through. Knowing how these past hosts have traveled through recovery would be inspiring. Thanks for your dedication to this podcast. There have been so many times it has given me strength and serenity. You are valued and appreciated for your efforts. Blessings to you, Suzanne. And thank you, Suzanne. That's an interesting thought. I've really lost touch with, with some of the past guests they've moved away and, and I, I'm really bad at, at keeping in touch with people, but I can ask around and see who's still here. Who'd like to come back and say, here, here's how I'm doing now. Great idea. Thanks. 
April says, thank you, Spencer. I've been binge listening to your podcast for a month or so now. I love it. I have gotten so much more out of your podcast since I've been going to meetings. I started my first meeting back in October. I live in a rural area that I have a meeting an hour and a half away on Mondays and Fridays, 35 minutes away on Wednesdays. I have a few other options on Friday, 45 in the opposite direction. I have a daytime job, 8 to 5, and then I open my business at 6, so I don't have a lot of time to set aside to attend a meeting. Your podcasts have helped me go on my way to work and when I get ready in the morning. I'm currently on episode 49. I tell anyone at any meeting I go to about this podcast. I have a sponsor, but she lives an hour and a half away, so I don't get to meet her as often as I need or like. I'm looking into a different sponsor, asked someone last week and was given two different reasons why she couldn't, and asked the lady next to her, and she also said she couldn't. Have you ever heard of maybe an online sponsor? I'm at the point that I don't think I could ask anyone else, as the two numbers I got last week deepened my fears of rejection. Those numbers almost sent me into the, oh, what is wrong with me? Can they see in me that I am not sponsor material? Can they see there is no hope for me? But because of your podcast, I've been able to divert these questions to my higher power, has other plans, or maybe they just can't take on any more at this time. My sponsor now is a great fit with me. She tells me how it is and other ways to deal with situations as they come up. It's just the distance, and she doesn't text, which is my comfort, until I feel safe enough to be able to live speak. She emails, but that takes a few days, and we all know when we need help, we need it now, lol. Anyway, thank you so much for keeping this avenue of recovery open for those of us that need it. I'm sure you have changed so many people's course of life. No one can fathom. Keep up the awesome work, April. Wow, I'm, I mean, I'm glad we can help with the uh, the distance thing because, yeah, that's a, that's a long way to go for meetings. I'm, I'm glad you are getting some. And my experience is that when somebody says they can't be a sponsor, it's because they can't be a sponsor. I mean, I've had to say no because I just have had too much in my life. I don't want to take on commitments that I can't follow through on. So benefit of the doubt there. And as you say, that's that's what you're... You know, you're giving it to your higher power, and that's, that's the only thing you can do. I think online sponsors can work. Um, it's good to have a sponsor with whom your communication style meshes with theirs. I totally agree with that. I would also encourage you to work through your, I don't know, fear that you'd expressed about speaking live um, and and try giving a call. Because if that works for her and you can make it work for you, that may be your best option. I don't know. Daniel's left us a voicemail. Hi, my name is Danielle, and I'm a brand-new listener. I just started listening last week. After doing some research about uh, what podcast I could find about Al-Anon, I've not been to my first meeting yet. I'm trying to work up the guts to go. I'm currently, my boyfriend is in recovery for the last eight years, but he is going through a rough patch right now, and I just, he just started going back to meetings last week. I believe he's going through a, a dry drunk spell. I am hoping that he will recognize the, the power and the importance of the program in his life, and I'm hoping that he'll remember how much he needs it. What, but what I'm working on is uh, how to navigate this uh, to be supportive but not enabling and also how to protect myself in a way. I listened to one episode about 
dry drunk where Dick something or other gave a talk. And I was just curious to know if there were any more episodes, and if not, if if maybe there could be. Mostly from the viewpoint of maybe someone who has had to support somebody going through a dry drunk spell um, and, and what that looked like. Uh, I realize I need to go to meetings, but um, I'm getting ready for work, just trying to arm myself for the day. I, I really love listening to these, and it just makes me feel like I can get through to the other side of this. So thank you for your show and for your work and your time and your honesty. It means a lot to me. Excellent idea for an episode. I think I probably have a little bit to contribute on that, but I want to reach out to my listener. If you're listening and you are maybe currently living with somebody who's going through a dry drunk phase or have in the past and are willing to share your experience, strength, and hope, please email feedback at the recovery.show or call and leave a voicemail 734-707-8795 or you can record a share on your smartphone and email it to us at therecovery.show, feedback at therecovery.show. Or let me know if you'd like to co-host an episode about that. Thanks. Jeff, who composed and performed the music that we used to open and close this show, writes about the Spirit in Action show. He says, it was great. I listened on their site. Nice work. Thanks again for including my song in your show. Thank you, Jeff, for giving me permission to use it. and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.